You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. If you're a longtime listener, you'll recognize Carl as the host of the web, website market-ticker.org. Always happy to catch up with Carl and get his perspective. He'll be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. It is June, so I have a special report for you titled Current Economy Income Strategies. Since income is the lifeblood of a successful, stress-free retirement, I encourage you to go to the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Request the report and let me know where to mail it. And when you go to the website, requestyourreport.com, and let me know where to mail the report, I'll include a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for the current economy. Uh, You'll also get a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. Both were Amazon bestsellers when released. I'll send you the report and both books absolutely free. All you need to do, again, to get all that information is go to requestyourreport.com. You know, I want to talk a bit about math in this segment. What do I mean about math? Well, I talk about it with Carl on today's program, but when you look at the math of the debt levels that exist in the United States, you come to one very, very obvious conclusion. So as I was preparing for the radio show this week, uh, I did some research on debt math, and the result was sobering. Now, I headed down this research path after having the conversation with Carl Denninger this week, and I'd gone through this exercise before taking a look at the level of debt that exists on the national level, at the federal level, and on the individual level. But I wanted to do it again and update it for the current situation and in greater detail. Now, part of the catalyst to doing this research was the recent debt deal made between Biden and McCarthy. That is President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Now, this deal, in my opinion, was frankly a joke. It was completely form over substance. It does nothing to address the fundamental issues that, if these are left unaddressed, it'll ultimately totally undermine the U.S. economy. And the way that affects you is it'll also affect your dreams of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. Now, there was an article on MSN recently that explained that rather than putting a new debt ceiling in place, the politicians collectively just suspended the ceiling. They said, we don't need a debt ceiling, which means that there is now the ability of the politicians to spend on an unlimited basis between now until the end between now, rather, and the end of 2024. Let me give you just a bit from this MSN article. Quote, Treasury Department data released Friday said federal borrowing crossed the $32 trillion mark on Thursday, 
less than two weeks after President Biden signed legislation into law that suspended the debt ceiling. That bill, which also included tens of billions in spending cuts demanded by House Republicans, will allow the government to borrow whatever it wants until the end of 2024 when the debt ceiling suspension ends. When Biden signed the bill into law on June 3, the total national debt stood at $31.47 trillion. On the very first business day after the debt ceiling was suspended, federal borrowing jumped nearly $400 billion, reflecting pent-up borrowing needs such as payments to federal worker retirement plans that the Treasury Department had delayed in order to avoid breaching the ceiling. So as of Thursday, the national debt stood at $32.04 trillion. So here we have a national debt of $32 trillion. We also now have in place an agreement that allows the government until the end of 2024 to spend anything it wants to spend. The politicians are no longer going to be limited or encumbered by any limit on expenditures. Now that's obviously, at least in my view, a problem. But it is far from the largest problem. All it does is exacerbate an existing unsolvable problem. And when I say unsolvable problem, I am being completely serious. So what is this unsolvable problem? It's the level of debt and unfunded liabilities at the federal level. Now, as of this time, if you go to usdebtclock.org, the website is usdebtclock.org, and if you go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you'll see this week's Portfolio Watch newsletter posted on the 26th at 5 p.m., and I have a link to the debtclock.org site in that Portfolio Watch newsletter. When you visit the debt clock, you'll see that the official U.S. government debt, as I just said, is now just over $32 trillion. Now, that's just the official debt of the federal government. Total U.S. debt, when you include federal government debt, which we just talked about at $32 trillion. When you add state government debt, when you add business debt and household debt, total debt in the United States, get this, now stands at nearly $101 trillion. That data is also at usdebtclock.org. So here we have total debt of $101 trillion, but That does not include unfunded liabilities. So what is an unfunded liability? Well, a good example of unfunded liabilities would be the Social Security system. We all pay into Social Security. We get a statement by going to ssa.gov and downloading it, and it tells us how much we are going to get from Social Security if we retire at a particular age, whether it's our full retirement age or later or earlier. Now, the reality is, even though we go to that website, even though we can see how much we're going to collect from Social Security, Social Security 
is underfunded. Social Security does not have all the money it needs to pay out those benefits. Medicare is underfunded. So when you go to the debt clock and you take a look at all the unfunded liabilities that exist in the United States, it's about $191 trillion. I did not misspeak. It's $191 trillion. So total debt, again, this is federal government debt, state government debt, business debt, and household debt, and unfunded liabilities now stand at $291 trillion. If you want to know how much that is, write 291 on a piece of paper and put 12 zeros behind it. 12 zeros behind the 291. Now, if you go to census.gov, it will tell you that the current U.S. population is about 335 million people. So if you take $291 trillion and you divide it by 335 million people, you've got a simple math problem that when solved tells you that the total debt and unfunded liabilities totals, get this, $868,000 per person that lives in the United States. So if you're listening to this, your share of the debt and unfunded liabilities problem is $868,000. If you're married, you and your spouse's share is a little over $1.7 trillion. If you and your spouse have two children, it's now about $3.4 trillion. That statistic alone is enough to clearly demonstrate that there's too much debt and there are too many unfunded liabilities to ever be paid, at least too much to ever be paid with honest currency. I'm going to talk more about this in the last segment of today's program. I'm going to walk through the math with you, and I'm going to walk through how this likely plays out in my view, and I'm going to walk through maybe what you should consider doing to protect yourself. But in the meantime, I'd invite you to get the June 2023 special report titled Current Economy Income Strategies. The report is yours by visiting requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the site, I'll send you the report as well as some bonus information. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is the host of the blog, market-ticker.org, also um, an author, uh, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, if you're a longtime listener, you'll recognize uh, Carl as a returning guest. Always appreciate his perspective. And Carl, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me on. So, Carl, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, the Fed took a pause at the last meeting. Um, I happen to think that that might be code for we might have to pivot. The, the economy is looking pretty weak here. Uh, what's your take on it? Yeah, I don't think the Fed's going to pivot on anything. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, yes, the economy is getting weaker. Um, the most recent PPI data showed it specifically in trade and transportation on the services side, which is, uh, I mean, that's the last place you ever want to show up, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's everything that moves in the economy, which is, well, everything from one end to the other, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, 
So that's definitely not where you want to see it, and yet that's where you know that's the that's the producer price index, which of course you know, takes several months to show up in the CPI. The the problem is that the reason we have an inflationary issue in the government is because of the policies of the government and the deficit spending that has taken place, and what that has driven you know, with below you know with the, what amounts to negative interest rates in real terms. The, the Fed has raised interest rates, but what the Fed has not managed to do by doing this is get Congress to cut this out or to curtail it in any meaningful way. And worse, this so-called deal that was made by the House Republicans uh, with regards to the essentially zeroing the debt limit, making it a non-limit for the next uh, two years until after the election is over, uh, means that the deficit spending is not going to go down. And if you remember, we had about a $4 trillion uh, federal government prior to COVID, just prior to COVID in 2019. Uh, it is now over six. So that's a, you know, that's a 50% expansion, right, from what it used to be. Uh, there is no indication that anybody within the federal government is willing to put, uh, you know, put that back to where it was and as a result, we're not going to see this problem go away until that happens. And, and where Powell finds himself today is essentially in the trap that Volcker found himself in, in that he got this idea that uh, things were coming under control. He backed off a little bit and then got a secondary spike because the government had not stopped the deficit spending. And, uh, you know, he, he jawboned to the best of his ability while Congress paid zero attention to him. And, and you know, then, of course, the uh, the second crank of the ratchet uh, had to take place, which which he did in order to actually bring the problem under control. So we're, we're in the same sort of uh, paradigm right now. The people in the market are, you know, glad handing this and, oh, happy days are here again. Everything's going to be fine. Oh, you know, there's there's a little bit of softening evident in the numbers. And there is. Um, and the yield curve is inverted, and there is, and this means that Powell is going to cut rates. Uh, I would uh, argue, no, he's not. And if you listen to his last press conference, he made very clear that uh, he's, he's he's not interested in listening to people screaming at him about this. That uh, you know he knows he knows the box he's in, and he knows what's going on. Uh, but he also said that it wasn't his job to go to Congress and tell them to cut it out, that that's, that's his job is set monetary policy. In other words, he's, his job is to react to what Congress does, not to tell Congress what to do. And he's right in that regard. Uh, the people who need to be telling Congress what to do is us. So, Carl, let me ask this. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute. Um, I certainly agree with you that the inflation doesn't go away unless deficit spending does. But as we now have, as you indicated, uh, really this uh, – you know, we don't we don't need a debt ceiling. That's the way Congress has approached this. So uh, it's, you know, free spending until after the next election. Um, who is going to finance this deficit spending? Uh, there's a there's a move away from the dollar around the globe. The BRICS countries are talking about a reserve currency uh, you know, that they want to try to roll out here in, in August. They're talking about maybe uh, uh, creating a bond so, so, so that there's a, a reserve system. And I understand that probably won't replace the dollar, you know, anytime uh, soon. But the, the question is still, how, how does the government finance this deficit spending without the Fed engaging in QE? Well, 
I think the you know the 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 problem with what the Federal Reserve did is that they gave Congress over the last twenty years this idea that no matter what happened, that that backstop in the form of lower rates and even direct uh, you know quantitative easing, if you will, you know, whatever you want to call it, bond buying, uh, that they would finance whatever the federal government decided to do, and that they would do it directly. And we have gotten this idea imbued into a couple of generations of politicians and, and Americans now that we can do this with impunity because we we added an externality. Um, you know, people, if you, if you think about systems as kind of a thermodynamic kind of thing, the way you can supposedly cheat in a thermodynamic system is to find some external source, either of energy or to, you know, to dump your excess heat. Um, so, you know, your car does not melt because you have a radiator, right? And so we essentially did this uh, by shoving that off into the third world, into, into, you know, what was at the time, China and India, to be specific, and, uh, and to some extent, sub-Saharan Africa, which is now the latest little place that we're trying to do it with. Problem with that is, is you know, this rock is a finite size mass and, and land space. And uh, so we've essentially run out of that, and then we blew up a lot of the international sequestration uh, when the Russia-Ukraine thing got going, in that we started imposing sanctions on people, and so we made it dangerous. It, it used to be considered a completely safe thing to do to offshore you know, your supply chain and your monetary flows in that kind of a fashion. It's not now, and everybody knows it. And so, uh, you know, that's that that's over. But it was it was destined to end anyway, even without the Ukraine thing. Uh, and uh, if anything, it pulled it forward by, you know, by a short number of years. We have to get under control within the federal budget. CMS, that's Medicare, and Medicaid. If we do not do that, there is no other way to fix this. It's just the math on it. It's just where all the money goes. Two trillion of the six that the federal government spends last fiscal year was between Medicare and Medicaid, and that is absolutely unsustainable. It's it, and you know unsustainable doesn't mean we have to fix it twenty years from now. I've been saying this for fifteen years. I've been saying this all the way back into the nineteen nineties. It needs to be stopped, and we're not going to get this inflationary impulse under control until we do that. So, Carl, you, you pointed out, I believe, earlier in this segment, if you're just joining me, uh, we're chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. He is the uh, the host and blogger at market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, Carl, you said earlier in the segment that, you know, pre, pre-COVID, um, you know, it's about a $4 trillion budget. We're now at $6 trillion, uh, you know, a 50% increase in just a few short years. Uh, th- that is just a a train wreck waiting to happen. So, I mean, what is the end game here? I mean, do, do, do either of us really believe that uh, Washington's going to change its ways until there is a reactionary reset? I mean, are they going to be proactive about this? What, what's the end game here in your view? I don't think they're going to be proactive about anything. I mean, it's at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that we've, we as Americans have gotten this idea in our head that we can have something for nothing. And, you know, we, <laughs> We we don't think there's anything wrong with making a hundred thousand dollars and spending one hundred thirty. Okay, and that's and, and it's been going on for you know for three decades now. Uh, this has to stop. And it, the reality of it is that you cannot tax your way out of it. There isn't enough money. 
So there's no way to do that. The, the spread of monopolist pricing influences and, and all sorts of crazy stuff uh, that leads to it and the cost that that incurs, which is, which is all profiteering, okay, it's all it is, uh, is not just, not just in Medicare and Medicaid. I, just as, a, as another quick example, uh, there are a whole bunch of, of so-called consumer products that have Energy Star labels on them. I've discovered one group of them in particular that consumes 30% more power, electricity, than one that does not have that label on it. And on top of that, the way that they got those ratings and the way that they allegedly gamed this was to cheapen the internal components on a durability standpoint. So these things fail every three to six months, sometimes a year. They have one-year warranties. So you have to buy another one because it's out of warranty. And, uh, and the trash ends up filling up the landfills on top of it. And this is, it's, it's all a scam. And yet the people who make these products love this because you're back in the store buying another one. So, and, and the same, you know, this is, is, I mean, that has nothing to do with medical care, but it's the same problem when you get down to it. So, Kyle, we've got just about uh, two minutes left in this segment. Um, you made a comment that uh, I think a lot of people maybe are not aware of. It, you know, that you can't tax your way out of this problem. There's just not enough money. Uh, you know, there's rhetoric out of Washington from the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders saying, hey, we can just tax the billionaires. Uh, but we can literally confiscate all their wealth, and that might cover the deficit for a year, year and a half. So we put them in the poorhouse, and we're right back to where we are now. Um, y- you know, when you when you look at how this has to be solved, we're we're really looking at draconian cuts. And doesn't that mean that eventually, ultimately, we're going to have to go through a 1930s style deflationary environment? Yeah, it pretty much does. I mean, that's the you know that that's the problem when you get down to it. Um, but what is, I mean, let's, let's think about the, what, what is draconian? What do you, what do you mean draconian? Okay. I mean, what are people really looking at in that regard? When you say draconian cuts, what do you, what do you, you know, what are people thinking about in that context? Okay. Uh, is, is taking, you know, 20% off, uh, these kinds of things is is that draconian is telling the people who are charging five thousand dollars for a drug over here in the United States that sells for five hundred bucks everywhere else in the world uh, is telling them they can't do that kind of thing anymore uh, by the way that's illegal it's been illegal for more than a hundred years is actually prosecuting the people who do that is that draconian or is or is that just putting things back to be what they what they should have always been? Well, that's a great point. And unfortunately, the clock says we are out of time for this segment, but I'll be talking in the next segment with Mr. Carl Denninger. The website is market-ticker.org. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting once again today with Mr. Carl Denninger. If you are not a regular reader of Carl's blog at market-ticker.org, I'd encourage you to check it out. Again, the website is market-ticker.org. And, uh, Carl, you kind of called me at the end of the last segment on uh, my use of the word draconian and what is draconian. You know, I think whenever you uh, take away benefits that the government's providing uh, to a particular citizen, uh, they're probably going to view that as draconian, even though in the uh, context of history, it's it's probably not. Uh, but but aren't we going to have to do away with a lot of? I'll just use the term freebies. Aren't, aren't, isn't a lot of aren't a lot of those things going to just have to go away? 
Well, yeah, they are going to have to go away. And, and the thing is, is that there's no such thing as a freebie. Okay, I mean, that's that's the root of the problem is that there's there is only taking from one person and giving it to another. Okay, there's there's there is no such thing as a free anything. It's not possible. You, you can't, you know, if you think about it, the only thing that's free is your thoughts. Okay, nothing else is ever free because it can't be free. You, if if you get health care, somebody has to provide it. A doctor has to actually provide health care, right, or a nurse. Uh, if if you consume something, someone else has to make it first. Other than breathing the air in or, you know, we're drinking water. Well, for that matter, who's going to purify the water? I mean, you know, what comes up, what's in the stream is probably not safe to drink, right? So, I mean, there is no such thing as free. So we either have a system where there is an exchange of goods and services over time, um, or we have a system where, where people get this idea that they can just take from somebody else. And what happens when the person that you take it from says, no, I'm not going to give it to you? So, Carol, we're starting to see it. In the last segment, we talked about the fact that, you know, this deflationary reset is likely inevitable. Uh, when you look at M2 money supply, it is contracting at an alarming rate. Are we at the beginning of this process, in your view? Are we at the beginning of this deflationary environment? Yeah, I think we are. But, uh, you know, it, it, what, is, what is the word alarming in this context? What's alarming about going back to something that, that makes some kind of sense? Uh, see, I disagree entirely that that's alarming. Um, you know, the idea that, that, well, we put all this inflationary impulse into here. If we just come back to 2% inflation, then everything will be fine. No, it won't be fine. How does, how does the person who cannot afford their rent today... How does reducing the 13% increase that they got last year in their rent to 2%, how does that solve the problem? Okay, the only way that you can solve the problem is the last two 13% increases have to come back out. That's a 25% increase that has to come back out. So what is alarming about the M2 money supply going back to where it was in, say, 2019. So, Carl, let, let's shift gears a minute here and, uh, and, and talk, uh, talk a little politics. I mean, when, when you take a look at, are we at the beginning of this deflationary environment, it's your view that Fed probably doesn't pivot. Um, how does all that impact 2024? And, and we are now in the middle of this, well, at least at the beginning of this election cycle. How, how do you see all this playing out politically? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting politically. This is a this this is a firestorm for everybody on all sides. Right? You have, you know, we we have the Trump uh, camp on the Republican side, which, uh, despite uh, all the attempts to say, well, you know, we can we can make that go away by doing this and that, you know, whether it's indicting him or whatever have you. Uh, all that seems to be happening is it's it's hardening the part of of. The Republican Party that was that was in support of him and, in, and within his base, um, the idea that this was going to destroy that support that was was always ill thought. Uh, anybody that doesn't understand that when you put people under extreme levels of economic pressure, you tend to get strong men that show up, um, or as as I and some others like to call it, an Austrian magically appears. Gee, that didn't happen, you know, 
not all that long ago, right? I mean, you know, 80, 90 years ago. Um, we all know what came out of that, and I don't think any of us would like to see a repeat of it. But that's, that is what always ends up happening when you do this sort of thing. Rather than take the medicine, take the lumps, tell the people who are, have, have wildly profited from this, you know what, uh, these enterprises that you thought were, were so profitable, they really aren't. Um, uh, we're not going to take your money. We're not going to try to tax it away from you because, it, first off, that doesn't work. But, but these businesses, they're not viable without this support. We're taking the support away. If they collapse, they collapse. That's the way life goes. Uh, you know, gee, you did it the first time. If you're really all that smart and you didn't steal it, you can do it again, right? Um, and then on the other side, you have the Bernie Sanders you know, camp of the world and the Biden camp of the world increasingly, uh, which is that we're, we're not going to do anything to control any of this. We're, we're going to continue, you know, we're going to continue to do this kind of nonsense. Uh, you look at all the people that were dead wrong over the, the last three years with regards to pandemic response, and, and not one of them has had to forfeit a single dollar that they stole. Not one. And yet all of this, you know, much of this was coerced. This wasn't free choice. None of the stuff that went on during that time was free choice. The bar that was shut down didn't shut down because the owner was scared. They were shut down because a cop showed up with guns and told them to close the doors or they were going to pull their liquor licenses. So none of the people who were wrong have paid for any of this. They kept all the money. And, and now we're having, you know, we're getting bashed over the head by politicians on both sides of the aisle telling us that we can continue to have this free lunch and nobody, you know, none of this has to go away. I look at housing around where I live. It's insane. There is no way that a person who actually has a job in this area can afford to live in one of these places. And so, and that's true in most of the major metro areas, you know, and, and smaller rural areas around the country right now. How do you solve that? with monetary policy. You can't. The reality is, is the guy who bought the house for $300,000 and thinks he can sell it for six, he can't. It has to go back to three. Well, that's a 50% loss, right? And that's, that's all through the economy. That has to happen. It's the only way to bring things back into balance. Well, Carl, ever since the dollar became a fiat currency in 71, you, you know, you can go back and take a look at real estate. You can look at stocks and you know, with some degree of predictability, there's a boom and bust cycle. And every time we have a boom, it seems to be a bigger boom, which leads to a bigger bust. And it takes more, you know, easy money policies to, 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 to reinflate the bubble. Do you think that assuming real estate declines, and I agree with you completely there, when real estate declines, when, when, stock decline, when stocks decline again, I believe they will, do you think that the, the, the Fed will be able to reinflate or are you of the opinion, as you stated earlier, that they're just going to say, look, we, we've just got to take our medicine here and we've got to we, we, we've got to just let this reset happen? Well, I don't see how the how the Fed reinflates under the current paradigm. Um, I mean, you know, wh where is the reinflation going to come from? What what do you do? You bounce. You, you continue to prop up the crazy real estate prices, which means that nobody can afford to buy a house. I, where do people live? I mean, at the point that this, you know, everybody loves this stuff when it's in stocks, okay? Because your portfolio, you know, you get your statement every month and the portfolio says, you know, your statement says you have more money. Okay, everybody loves that. Until you go try to spend it on something and realize you're the guy who can buy a house because you've got a half million dollar portfolio. But the 20-something-year-old guy 
who's who, by the way, has to pair off with a woman and start a family or down the road when you die, there's no one to replace you. At some point, you lose the critical mass of people that have the drive and have the ability to do things like keep the electricity on and keep the water going. And we are in danger of that happening. There's a demographic disaster headed our way, and it's directly we, – we have a fertility rate well below 2.0 at the present time. By 2100 at this rate, you're going to have a third of the people in this country that we have today. Now, that obviously won't happen because long before then, what we think of as civil society will collapse. There won't be anybody that runs a power plant. There won't be anybody that runs a water plant, the sewer plant. And no, you cannot take third world people that have no education, no training. They just don't have the chops to do it and bring those people in as immigrants to try to replace those who used to be here and do it. It's, it, it's all nice to say, well, that's a warm body, but that warm body can't make change for 20. Carl, as you're talking, I'm, it reminded me of really what's happened in Japan. I mean, when you look at Japan's uh, monetary policy going back to the, you know, the Nikkei crashing decades ago, uh, they're on this same path just, just ahead of us. And they've got not only a shrinking population, but an aging population. Uh, isn't that a result of monetary policy? And aren't we on the same path? Absolutely. They're headed, they're, you know, they're further down the bowl than we are with this. But they're headed in the, exactly the same place as we're headed. And if, if, you know, anybody that thinks that what's going on in, you know, over in Japan is a, is, you know, is a good thing and is something that we can just go ahead and have, you know, go for, good Lord. I mean, uh, you got to be out of your mind. That's nuts. And yet that's the kind of thing that's, that's headed for us. And we need to stop it. So, Carl, in the time we have left, how do we stop it? If Carl Denninger is setting policy, what do we do? Well, we have to, first off, we have to stop the medical monopolies. That's the, that is the most critical element of this that has to happen right now. And, and that means an awful lot of people are going to get awfully angry uh, because the reality of it is, is that whether you like it or not, those people make a lot of political contributions. They spend a lot of money on, you know, on getting their way. And, and we just simply have to tell them, no, this is, this is ending right here, right now. You must stop it. And if you don't, we're going to put you in jail because that's what has to happen. Um, I mean, are we, are we willing to take our lumps on this and, you know, and then go for, well, I don't know, but we're going to have to do it. And I, and I know that nobody wants to go down that road, but we have to do this. It's not a choice. Uh, and, uh, you know, will we get there from here? Well, you know, we'll see. Well, the clock says we are going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. The website is market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. Carl, I always get great feedback when you're on the program. Appreciate the interview today. Love to have you back down the road. Thank you for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to my special guest on today's program, Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me. If you haven't yet requested your June 2023 special report titled Current Economy Income Strategies, I'd invite you to do so by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. When you visit the website, you'll just need to let me know where you want the report mailed, and I will mail you the report that outlines three of the most common retirement income planning mistakes 
and some solutions that you might consider in your own particular situation. So again, that's requestyourreport.com. So at the first segment of today's program, I talked a bit about the fact that when you add the total debt that exists in the United States, that's government debt, business debt, and household debt, and you add in the unfunded liabilities, you get $291 trillion. And I pointed out that there's 335 million people that live in the United States. So your share of all this debt and unfunded liabilities are $868,000. Now that statistic and that statistic alone is enough to convince me that there will have to be more currency creation in the future. And that is my opinion. There are a number of guests that I interview here on the program that have a different opinion. When you look at the math, I don't see what the alternative is. Because the reality is, as I've discussed here on the program in the past, as I talk about in the new retirement rules class that I do, and as I've written about in my books, politicians have only three choices when it comes to dealing with budget shortfalls. They can, one, increase taxes. They can, two, cut spending. Or they can, three, create currency. And that's with the help of a central bank in the U.S., the Federal Reserve, in today's world. Now, the harsh and stark reality is that this debt and this unfunded liability problem is too large to be covered by taxpayers, no matter how the current or some future crop of politicians might elect to try it. You can't do it by raising taxes. The problem is just too big. Carl Denninger and I talked about that on today's program. Now, let me demonstrate this to you. According to the Tax Foundation, there were 157.5 million tax returns filed for the last year in which we have current data. So for ease of doing the math, let's call it 158 million tax returns. If we take $291 trillion in debt and unfunded liabilities, now admittedly, some of this debt is private sector debt, just to be fair, but 291 trillion divided by 158 million means we get a number of about $1.4 million per tax return. Now, to phrase this differently, if you file a tax return to solve this problem, you and every other person filing a U.S. tax return would need to cough up about $1.4 million. And even after writing that check, assuming you're financially capable of doing so, there's still a federal deficit every year that needs to be dealt with. So let's analyze this predicament another way. If we take $291 trillion and we make the assumption that the debt and the unfunded liabilities are paid over time, let's assume that we can find somewhere in the world to borrow $291 trillion. However, that's more money than exists. If you borrow the money at 5% and you finance it over 20 years, you need to have a monthly payment of $1.92 trillion. Yes, $1.92 trillion a month. Now, according to the Tax Foundation, which I quoted previously, the total annual adjusted gross income reported on all the 157.5 million tax returns filed was 12.5 trillion. 
If you add up all the gross income earned by all taxpayers, you get $12.5 trillion. So if we break that down by the month, we get a little more than a trillion dollars a month. That's how much money American households earn every month. It's actually 1.042 trillion per month. But to solve this debt and unfunded liability problem, if we can finance it at 5% and amortize it over 20 years, we need $1.92 trillion a month. So we could confiscate 100% of the income of all Americans and only solve 54% of the problem. Now, what about taxing billionaires? Well, the rhetoric spewing politicians who say we need to tax billionaires and make them pay their fair share, I'm not going to bat for billionaires, but I do possess a bit of common sense. And I was raised in the era of flashcards, so I do have the ability to do math even without a calculator. So I'm not buying into it because the total net worth of all billionaires is four and a half billion dollars. That's enough to make between two and three hypothetical payments on the debt as we just worked through it in this segment. So you cannot solve this problem by increasing taxes. Now, what if this deficit problem is addressed by cutting spending? Do you really think the collective group of politicians in Washington is going to cut spending? I think winning the lottery is way, way more likely than a balanced budget. If you go to the Treasury Department through the end of May with a fiscal year starting October 1, the deficit so far is $1.16 trillion. Prorating that out for the year, it's about $1.75 trillion. If you take a look at what you would need to cut, excluding Social Security, all programs have to be cut across the board 41%. If you take Medicare off the table, you've got to cut 57%. And you have to pay interest on the debt, which according to the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, will cost about $700 billion this year. So what is going to happen? Well, I think we're going to see more currency creation. And the reality is you cannot print your way to prosperity. The prosperity that we've seen since the financial crisis is a result of deficit spending. But it really hasn't been prosperity. It's been a prosperity illusion. Webster defines an illusion as something that deceives by producing a false or misleading impression of reality. And I believe that describes the current economic environment. So what should you do? Well, the first thing you should do is order the June 2023 special report, which will outline income planning mistakes that many retirees make and some solutions. You'll get some bonus information when you request it. Go to requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send you the report and all the bonus information. Again, the website requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. Hope you will be too.